but Nick Saban, this guy, this is what he said. He said, know what you want to accomplish and focus on the process rather than the outcome. I love that. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think how many it's... people? How many people are? Uh, <clears throat> how many people are out, outcome oriented in anything, not just piping? I think by default, a lot of us are for sure. Yeah. At and least, then, at least like, speaking for myself, it takes effort to not be that way. I think it's so easy to fudge certain desired outcomes in the bagpiping realm that a lot of people just abandon process entirely. And just mm-hmm. go into uh, outcome mode, you know, like mm-hmm. it's all you have. If you have money, you can you can just buy a lot of stuff like a nice uniform, fancy set of pipes. And then, you know, 92 percent of the general population, probably more, will believe you're a great piper if you just buy this stuff. Yeah. If you look uh, the part. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, which is a shame because I think that. uh um I think that the process is can, the process can be extremely rewarding, uh, mm. but I think a lot of people get sucked into outcome based things. The other, the other, you know, it'll happen in the competition world too. It's like, you know, just cause, just cause you take a, a bunch of prizes in grade four senior, just like wait to see what happens when they, uh, when they, is it desegregate you? Yeah. They, when they desegregate you from the children and in, in, uh, <laughs> right. grade in the grade three and then like, you know, but then suddenly your your outcome focused effort, which is like, oh wow, solo competition is so cool because you know I'm I'm a big winner. Just like my outcomes wait, are good. Yeah, wait till that evaporates, and then mm. well, then then you find out uh, then you find out that you probably should have been uh, process based all along. Yeah, yeah process you, based. You had that focusing on the process in anything. I think it's maybe come up in conversation between us before too that just like it seems so much more sustainable because you can always, you're always going to be doing the process. So if you can get joy out of the process, you'll always be able to enjoy the process. But if it's outcome-based, that's putting the locus of control for your happiness in something external that might or might not play out. It's a great, uh, it's a great point. It's like if you're trying to hit a million dollars in sales in your business or something, right? Uh, each month you're trying to get to that million dollar mark. And it's like, and right now you're at the $10,000 mark, right? Or even the $1,000 mark. Well, mm. it's going to be a while before you've hit a million dollars in sales. Right. Um, but like every step of the process towards the million dollars is, a, you know, represents improvement from where you were before. Uh, and so to just focus on, you know, uh, just focus on improving your sales 10% each month and compounding that or something like that. You know, mm. uh, focusing on that process and enjoying it has a lot more upside than just anxiously waiting uh, to the day, which might be 80 years from now, where you hit a million dollars in sales for the month, right? It would be way better to celebrate, you know, uh, con- continual growth of the process uh, mm-hmm. as it happens. It reminds me of a, I forget who said it, but uh, desire is an agreement you make with yourself not to be happy until you get what you want. Mm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, that, that, it's that, all, that fits, I, I don't yeah. Know. Save that one for the chapter mind. heading of uh, the next edition of your book. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I, I don't know if you can ser- see... Bagpipe servitude. See this guy right here? I don't know if you can tell. That's, a, that's actually a Bob Ross bust right here above my, above yes. my shoulder. And actually... Coincidental or did you become a fan because you read the book? Because you I, read I chapter wish, three. I wish I could tell you that as of chapter three, I started buying Bob Ross paraphernalia, but that's actually been there for years. One of my good friends gave that to me years ago. Um, Why because, did your friend give it to you? Because I love Bob Ross. Why and do you so love Bob he. Ross? Um, the, the joy of painting was a staple of my childhood, an absolute of staple of my childhood. I'm so glad because I thought I, I didn't think I was the only one, but I was wondering if when I wrote about this, other people would not know what I was talking about. No, Andrew, my, our local pipe band... The, which is called Garden Valley Pipe Band, and a tree is our logo. Our original plan was to be the Bob Ross Memorial Pipe Band, oh, and nice. and our our plan was that the drumhead would be would be a a painting of Bob Ross painting on a drumhead, of him painting on a drumhead, of him painting on a drumhead, et cetera, et cetera. And we reached out to the Bob Ross um to the to his family trust, and they we never heard back, and we ended up not going with it. But uh, 
we still so we have a tree as our logo instead a happy little tree mm-hmm, of course and our our and our our slogan is irish um crane shona which means little trees or little tree so the the wow. bob ross love runs pretty deep over here so you picked the right the right so guy why, to focus on why why do you guys love bob ross so much well, you know, I wouldn't have been able to articulate it really other than this feeling that when watching him, the way that he talked, the way that he painted, of course, it was like magic watch, watching his paintings happen right before your eyes, you know. But then also just his his whole demeanor and attitude of just like, you can do this too, you know. The, the, the whole idea of like, look, you don't have to be born with a special gift. You don't have to be one of the elites. You can do it too. That That's a pretty cool message for anybody to yeah. be soaking in, you know. I sometimes wonder if that's why I've never taken an interest in uh, like visual arts or painting at all is just mm. because I honestly don't believe there's that much to it uh, because he made <laughs> Bob it, Ross so made it easy. too easy. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'm sort of joking, but also sort of yeah. not. It's kind of like, I kind of believe I could maybe do it because he yeah. broke it down into such easy pieces on a regular basis. And yeah, mm. like, you know, I don't, it was on, I think it was strategically on right around nap time for kids back in the day. <laughs> yes. It was yeah. on, at, at least where in our area, it was on at like three or four in the afternoon. Yep, in and the like, afternoon, yeah. You know, it's like you can either take a nap or you can STFU while I watch Bob Ross. And so like we would just, <laughs> we would just uh, watch Bob Ross. And uh, yeah, it was great. I, I, it's really cool. And then, of course, you can watch all the YouTubes now and it's still really yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah, and so you you open the chapter talking about Bob Ross and how um, like as he finishes a painting, he would add some finishing touches, and that was just mind blowing. But the finishing touches aren't there from the beginning. So they're not. They're not there from the beginning, and that that's would, kind of the. It would be not only are they not there at the beginning, but it would be totally absurd, right? If they were right. It'd right, be absolutely weird. You right? can't even imagine that. Absolutely, it would be so absurd. absurd. You would turn off the TV program if that was the case. <laughs> it's like, okay, everybody, hey, it's Bob Ross here. It's like now we're going to start with some tiny little icicles uh, painted in empty <laughs> space in the middle of nowhere. Uh, you're just going to just go ahead, paint those icicles. Make sure that you're perfectly pristine and perfect with the measurements of the icicles, even though we haven't painted any trees. You yeah. don't even know what the painting is about. Right. You, you don't know if it's a desert with like, you know, you don't know if it's an ironic desert painting with icicles or if it's ironic some sort of tundra or if it's a log cabin or if it's a mountain. You don't know anything, but we're definitely going to start with icicles and all the little details and make sure you get those perfect. Okay. Yeah, lots of lots of nuanced talk about how like make sure this icicle is a little longer than the next one. Make sure that icicle is a little shorter. Yeah. Make sure that icicle is darker. And then <laughs> I would picture like then you also have to picture a lot of know-it-all famous painters kind of just hanging around, being like, "Oh, you don't need any of that background crap." Yeah, like right. you don't you don't need any of those paint brushes. That's for suckers. Real painters, <laughs> real painters just use toothpicks to paint the icicles. <laughs> right. You, know? you need a lot of know-it-alls like like wandering around. It's like, well, I I won uh, you know, I won the silver medal in, you know, middle of nowhere one that one time. And I, let me tell you that yeah. uh backgrounds are for suckers. You don't need any of that. You don't need to understand any of that. You just get down to your icicles. And, yeah, and that probably would be- plenty, plenty of talk about how expensive your toothpick needs to be in order to do the icicle yeah. as well. And you would need an electronic, like you would need some sort of electronic uh, color grade uh, yeah. device in order to get the color of the icicles just right too. You need need that. And then like maybe, and I'm sure kitty litter comes in somewhere. I'm just not quite sure where. But anyway, <laughs> we're, we're, we're like, we're spiraling into a dark uh, black <laughs> black hole of sarcasm here. But back to my original point. It would be absurd if Bob Ross started with all the detail work in his paintings. Right. That's a clue that we'll come back to later, right? Mm-hmm. That's okay. right. So so yeah. um, where were we? So he never starts with the details, hoping that the background will sort itself out, is the way you put it. Oh, we're just oh, gonna, yeah. th- that'll just sort itself out eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That, of course. That's not the way it goes. Um, no. They don't start with complexity. And you suggested, too, that even if he wasn't teaching on camera specifically to amateurs, it probably still wouldn't start with complexity. It would well, probably true. still start 
with a basic background. Yeah, just to stay on stay on with the sarcasm, right? Like I'm sure when he paints by himself, he goes straight to the toothpicks and does the icicles before yeah. he even decides what he's going to paint. As if he's only starting the back with the background for our sake because That's we're right. the amateurs watching. Yeah, exactly. And you and you mentioned you do have a fine arts degree yourself or multiple? Do you have one? I do. do have I have one. One degree was enough for me. Only good one. Lord. Mm. <laughs> yeah, one degree was enough for me. If you want to talk about, uh, if you want to talk about, uh, yeah, uh, crazy people running around saying strange things, just get a fine arts degree. Yeah, and but you do suggest that you've been exposed to plenty of artists, and you you suggest that all successful artists, um, in whatever field they're working, creation happens in this order: foundation. Mm-hmm. And then work outward toward complexity. Ooh, that's man! It's like you really read the chapter. I'm so honored. With my, yeah. I listened to it. I used my eyes yeah. to read it afterward. I've, I've, yep, absolutely. Yeah, that's the way everything works. And I mean, uh, you, you, it, it's not just art. I mean, I think every mastery oriented activity mm-hmm. uh, it must go in that order. It, it cannot go in the other order. Whenever you hear why... somebody. Whenever you hear somebody that seems to be suggesting it goes in the opposite order, like, you know, the alarm bell should start to go off in your mind. Mm. At least they do in my mind. Now, this might not have been significant, but if it was, tell me. The title of the book is Finding Bagpipe Freedom, but -hmm. the title of this chapter is Earning Bagpipe Freedom. Yeah. And I wonder, is that why if we, in order to earn bagpipe freedom, we got to do the work in this way, right? Start with your foundation and then work your way outward. And mm-hmm. thus you, thus you earn your way into it. Yeah. I can't remember if I consciously picked the name of the chapter or mm. not. I, I just, I think I just went for it and I didn't do a whole lot of thinking about it. Gotcha. But yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So, and, th- and that's what, uh, uh that's what we're going to do. It's, and it's, a, uh, you know, it's a shock to many pipers. When we, when we, you know, Hey, how do I get better? So I tell you how I think you should get better. Okay. But then it's a shock to the system where it's like, wait, you want me to do what? Like you want Mm -hmm. me to put down the practice Jenner and just confirm to myself that I can do basic rhythm. Like, what are you crazy? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, uh, uh, should we just go straight there? Uh, Yeah. Because it actually fits to, you use a model that fits that idea of starting at the center with, with the basics and then moving out toward complexity where you talk about a bicycle wheel and how think about that center of the bicycle wheel and everything is coming out like spokes from there. You you know, that's that you got to start there. If you start with a spoke, you know, it's not much use. Yeah. And that was, that's a hypothesis at first, right? So in Mm. science, in, in science, you have to make a conjecture first. Yeah. You have to, you have to say that, you know, and, and, and we did this over the years. And by the way, just throwing it out there, we, uh, and I say this a lot when we started the dojo our you know, the big thing that, you know, people that really blew people's mind was called a lap ASAP, which, you know, uh, which is an expression. Uh, it's a, it's a way of thinking about basic elementary bagpipe expression. And people Mm -hmm. are like, but if you think about that, that's an icicle. That's a detail, Mm. right? So just like everybody else, you know, you, you, uh, you, you start out there and you realize, okay, well that that's cool. I I guess people's basic expression is somewhat better, but like people still, our students still aren't really, you know, sounding like I hoped they would sound. And then you start to backtrack and you, you make a whole bunch of, you know, hypotheses. And I don't think it's a coincidence that rhythm was really the last uh, aspect of what we do to join the family because it is mm. really the root. It, it's because it is the root of the problem. However, my point is uh, at first you hypothesize these things like, you know what it might be. It might be that just people can not actually play rhythm that well. And so if they can't play rhythm, it's obviously going to muck up a lot of the other bits. And so uh, let's just pause for a moment. I remember two or three years ago at the dojo when I was chatting with Carl about this, I think we need to stop everything. And at the moment, at the time, Carl really was resistant. He's like, mm. people are going to hate this, bro. Which, by the way, they totally did. But yeah. it was mm. worth it because. Uh, but I was like, I think we need to pause everything we're doing, and I just want to see, like, classes for the next several weeks. I want to just see everyone clapping rhythms, and that's it. Mm. Uh, and just like we just need to quit cold turkey on literally everything else. 
just to test my hypothesis. And the hypothesis was, I bet you people aren't really uh, super clear on the rhythms of the tunes that they're playing. And uh, so we did it. And do you think people were super clear on their rhythm, Jim? I'd imagine they were not. They were not. It, it's actually so much more than that. It was a complete and utter train wreck. Mm. No offense to the people who were there back in the day. And, and I actually have a lot of gratitude for the people who went through that with us because we, uh, we figured out that even really pretty darn good experienced pipers had no clue. If you just took the tune and put it down as like just rhythms with no embellishments or nothing on the page and you just gave, that, gave it to them, they had no idea how to work with it. Just basic rhythm elements, you know, things that you would normally take for granted and assume people, oh, it's like, oh, dotted, dot and cut 16th notes, like no problem, right? Problem. It was a big problem. And so anyway, we, we got down to work and we started to work on the rhythm and miracles started to happen. Mm. Like people who had really terrible crossing noises, they literally evaporated mm. within a couple of weeks. Like I'm not exaggerating. Like people would show up and you'd be like, wait a second. Like it still wasn't great, but you're like, wait a second. What, were there zero crossing noises in that? And you'd have them play it again. And then it was like, there's no crossing noises. And like, what the heck happened? And uh, anyway. I can uh, imagine pushback against that being like, wait, I can't spend time clapping. I've got to work on my crossing noises. Exactly. But, but then... what is a crossing noise? Right? A crossing noise is a timing mishap uh, between a variety of different fingers, right? That's what. Yeah. Uh, and so as it turns out, once you're absolutely clear on the timing, right? Suddenly your fingers know exactly when they're supposed to go. And, um, and, and not every crossing noise disappears, but like a shocking number, like 87%, mm. a shocking number disappears. And to the point where we don't really have a crossing noise epidemic always going on at the dojo, you know, uh, for people listening, like, you know, we teach a lot of beginners and intermediates. And so you would expect a ton of crossing noises and we have far fewer now because, Mm. Rhythm is baked into the process and people are getting clear about that early on, but I digress. Uh, yeah. Rhythm is the center of the, the finger work wheel, isn't it? It's like, you know, from which all the other spokes come out of that. Right. Crossing I've, noises, I've been... grace notes, embellishments and expression. They all center around the mistaken assumption that you're very clear on just the basic rhythm elements of the tune. Yeah. Yeah, like like several other things that we've talked about, Andrew, I am now just riddled with guilt for the people who I've taught <laughs> and okay, skipped good, over rhythm good. in a big way. Um, you mentioned in the chapter, you have this part where you say, unfortunately, typical bagpipe instructors are prone to saying something like, don't worry about the rhythm. It'll all fall into place naturally yeah. over time. I've said exactly that on yes, multiple occasions. Exactly. Um, and um, and, the, and the, other, the other less nice one is like... Um, you don't want to do the dojo. The dojo does all that stupid metronome crap all the time. Mm. Right. Yeah, and, 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 yeah. and it's true. We do. We like, you know, we do use the metronome. There's a couple of logistical reasons for that. One, one of them being you and I can't yet play in unison together over the internet. There's, right. there's, there's the latency issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't foresee that getting solved anytime soon, maybe with quantum computing or something like that. But uh, you and I can't actually play in unison. So, it, so a metronome is a great way for me, the teacher, to have a reference point to you as to what you're playing and whether or not you're timing it well. So there's those logistical reasons. But then also, we use the metronome. It's not, we're not uh, ever going to advocate someone goes out on stage with a metronome in their ear in order to keep them in time. That's not what it is. A metronome is a tool to help you develop a strong sense of timing because without that, you're going to be in trouble. Now, it's possible to develop a strong sense of timing without the metronome but it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so you so you mentioned later on in the chapter, you say that all note changes, meaning melody as well as grace notes, happen within a musical groove. Mm -hmm. And I, I know we've, Victor Wooten has come up in our conversations before. I don't know if you've ever come across um, a, an instruction, an instructional session he was doing where of course. he... He, he, he was doing this thing with his bass where he said, I'm going to play wrong notes. All these notes are outside of the key, right? 
-hmm. but I'm going to play them in the musical groove. Right. And I can't remember, I think he had percussion going or something and he just starts grooving and it sounded awesome. And he's like, yeah. you see, it still sounds awesome because I'm right in the groove. And he's like, that's where you start. And that's what came to my mind as I read this part. Like that groove is so important. Yeah, absolutely. And most pipers play groove free, even at <laughs> totally. the highest levels. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. It's not and a then, groovy medium. Usually. <laughs> I'm not sure I need to like finish my, my, uh, I need to finish this article before I publish it in the scientific journals, but I'm pretty sure the players we love, uh, like, cause you can think of the best pipers in the world, right? Think of the list of names, but let's not name any right now, obviously, but think of the best pipers in the world that you love to live. Well, and then actually, no, just let me try this one more time. Think of the yeah. best pipers in the world, right? Mm -hmm. There's only a small subset of those greatest pipers in the world that you'll actually seek out on a regular basis to listen to, right? So there's, yeah. there, there's the list. You got the list. Mm -hmm. You could think of the last five years of competitors at the Glenfiddich, right? But you've only ever turned on voluntarily a small subgroup of those players just for relaxation and enjoyment, at least if you're anything like me. And maybe I'm way off on this. No, but then, that, yeah, it makes but sense. then a yeah. hypothesis would be, or something I often wonder in my mind, is it like, are the ones I like listening to the ones that can present a really captivating rhythmic groove? Mm. And then the other ones actually, when it gets down to it, are not really successfully doing that. Mm. Hmm. I sometimes wonder, maybe I'm way off on that. I've, I also think that there's an equip there's, there's sort of like the two hemispheres of piping, right? There's all the finger work stuff we do. And then over on the other side, there's all the instrument sound elements. Um, so I, I, I think that like timbre and harmonic richness, again, this is a very raw hypothesis, but I think that's the rhythm equivalent over on the instrument side, right? Is the uh, kind of the core thing. Yeah. Well, maybe, but maybe not. I'm not actually, sh I'm not actually sure. I have to think about that some more. Hmm. Like maybe it's actually just the steadiness of the blowing and not the harmonics. That's like the, like, I wonder what the, what the actual center of the wheel there would be on the mm. bagpipe sound thing, but mm. I digress. Well, um, but anyway, those are the people that we turn on voluntarily and we really want to listen to. Yeah. And, and, and if you're tired of talking about rhythm right now, Andrew, we can, we can move on to the next section, but it's just, even in the chapter as reading through it, you, you say, I cannot emphasize this enough. Rhythmic control is the core skill, you know, like yeah. it just, it, you hammer on it because it's so important. And, and yeah. I, I, it even occurs to me, like we have a new gal in our pipe band here named uh, Kalari, who is classically trained on other instruments already. Shout out right? to Kalari. Shout out to Kalari. And when she came into our pipe band, as, as people who are, who are advanced on other instruments often do, she advanced, she moved pretty quickly on the, on the chanter and got onto pipes and very quickly was helping to teach our class. And I would hear her from across the room clapping with students, right? Yeah. I wrote our book that we use to teach kids, to teach kids, to teach everybody who comes into our class. And I have nothing about rhythm in there. I mean, I have like a very basic, uh, uh, diagram that shows you know whole note means four quarter notes each quarter note means what yeah. right but my assumption is basically you already know this or you can go find it somewhere else or it'll fall into place eventually right and she as someone who's see i'm deep inside of bagpipes that's my blinders are up that's your side yeah exactly and she as someone from outside of bagpipes can see whoa we're skipping over the most important thing here mm -hmm. these new students need to start by clapping and she Cool. You know, hats off to her. She started with that with her little group, and that's going to change how the band teaches for sure going yeah. forward. Between that and your book, we have plenty of reasons to focus on rhythm uh, from that's the beginning. Another, that's another thing that should set off the alarm bells, right? When people explain to you that, like, just because you played saxophone does not mean you can play the bagpipes, right? You hear people say that. For yeah. me, that makes me vomit a little bit in my mouth. Like, mm -hmm. obviously, that can't be true, right? If that's true, we have a very, very big problem. Mm. If it's true that you learn to play the saxophone, that should drastically shorten the length of time that you need to learn the bagpipes. And by the way, in using the dojo method, we found that to be true. Using um, many other methods, that's when people run into trouble. Saxophone players like, 
dethrow? What? Hmm. Like, why, yeah. am I, why am I worried about that? I can't even cover the holes yet. It's yeah. like, well, just trust me. You need that dethrow right now. Okay. Anyway, well, I digress. And- well, and rhythm, I'm sure rhythm will keep playing as we move on to melody. We'll come back to rhythm, I'm sure. But maybe it's worth pausing for just a moment, Andrew, to ask, like, for practicality's sake, what should people listening, what should I do with a metronome? You know, like, I'm listening to you, I'm reading your book, I'm going, okay, this is great. I, now what should I do? Should I just have a metronome going every time I practice forever? Or should that figure into the, you know, five, 10 minutes of my hard work portion of my practice session? Or how, what do you think? It's a good question. Um, and the basic idea is the metronome is kind of like a, I like to think of it as a measuring tape or something like that. Right. Mm. Where if you're, if you're going to build a structure, right. You, you got, you want to, if, if you want to get 12 and three quarters inches, right. You use the measuring tape and that help you, that would help you like make sure what you need is perfectly lined up. Notice that it's still you that has to make the decision that you need something that's 12 inches and three quarters. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, the, it's you that has to make the decision and then the metronome can help you make sure that you've got it all like the correct length, right? You could think mm-hmm. of a measuring tape like that. And the metronome is very much the same way. Okay. So uh, first what you would do is you would just, develop the basic ability to tap your foot or just clap exactly with the metronome and just kind of practice your ability to uh, predict exactly when things are going to uh, are going to need to happen and see if you can perfectly line up with that, which by the mm-hmm. way, you should not assume that that's easy. Most people it takes them a while to really kind of figure that out and get into it. And you could play other games from there. You could just set the metronome so that it clicks every other quarter note. So you, you, you always have one quarter note floating in midair without the metronome and making sure that you meet up with it again every two or every four beats or something like that. So just playing games with the metronome, testing your sense of timing is the first sort of thing that we would want to prioritize. Uh, and then from there, we'll, we will build common bagpiping grooves, common bagpiping uh, rhythmic combinations. We will build those with the metronome there. And you know, we, you can use clapping your hands or, or tapping on a desk or something like that. Uh, I prefer clapping actually, but uh, you know, or, or a drumstick could work really well also. Mm. Um, but you, you wanna practice those common bagpipe rhythms with the metronome there, ensuring that what you intend the rhythm to be is actually what it is. Yeah. Um, and so if it's disconnected from the metronome, then you wanna refine it. Mm. Uh, and if it's perfectly connected with the metronome, that's a good sign, right? Now, someday, of course, uh, at the higher levels, maybe we'll bend and twist and massage the perfection of the tempo for artistic reasons, and that's all fair game. But you can't bend and twist and massage the rhythm of the, you know, the perfect rhythm to get that light and shade or that strong weak, medium weak or whatever, right? Like those are all very subtle artistic rhythmic massagings okay Mm -hmm. but you can't massage something until you have basic control over it first right right you got to learn the rules and get them down before you can break them or bend them yep Mm -hmm. and the and the cool thing is that the rhythm is super fun like once it once it starts to click you're like aha i get it now let's try this now let's try this oh okay now let's just do one metronome click every four beats instead of uh one click every beat or Mm -hmm. something like that yeah so uh, that's what we would do with the metronome. Uh, like long story short, take the tune you're playing, uh, turn it into just basic rhythm and make sure that you can clap it really comfortably with total accuracy to the click of the metronome. Mm-hmm. Totally makes sense. That's a great exercise to go through. So then if we dive into the next section of the chapter, which is melody, the thing that immediately blew my mind the first time that I read it here is when you pointed out that the issue when playing a melody isn't have the finger positions. It's not having your posi- your fingers in position correctly. The, the challenge is um, moving your fingers between various positions. Ah. And I mean, I was like, yeah, well, of course it is, but I had never really thought of it. You know, I'd never, that had never been clarified in my mind. And I was like, oh yes. For a minute true. there, I was that's getting worried. I was like, happen. wait, I said that? <laughs> uh, yeah. So you're right. So um, interesting. Like, 
Now, maybe for the first couple of days, learning the different positions of the scale might be a little tricky. You know, you might accidentally forget that a C, you got to have the pinky down or whatever, sure. or, or mm-hmm. that all the high hand notes require the bottom hand notes to be in that low A home position. So for a little while, those note positions, you're going to have to learn them, right? Um, it's kind of like doing a spelling test. Like, you know, for a, a few minutes, you get, it's going to be a struggle to remember everything. But then eventually you're going to know those note positions. But that's not the hard part. Right. The hard part is going from note to note. Right. And in, in a, uh, a large different array, like at one point we th- sat down and we thought about um, exactly how many possible note changes there are. Right. Mm. And it's uh, and it's some sort of permutation. I don't remember the exact number, but. There's a bunch. Right. And mm-hmm. going uh, and, and working through those note changes that's where we run into real trouble yeah. uh, beca- because of the threat of crossing noises, which I think we already had a nice episode on crossing noises. So we don't probably have to go into a huge amount of depth again on that mm-hmm. if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the crossing noises are the real enemy. And then, and then the other thing about melody that's really important is that we need a basic grace note system. As soon as, you know, the bagpipers, we cannot play anything really uh, without at least some grace notes. So when it when you are ready to graduate from rhythm and bring that rhythm onto the chanter, we're, we're going to need melody notes and some grace noting uh, in order to produce a successful bagpipe melody. Um, so uh, those two things are sort of the second layer of the onion. Yeah, and this this is more of my own ignorance or like my my very bagpipey upbringing showing here that like you mentioned that that what you're breaking apart here is what is often a violation of the no multitasking dojo rule, right? That like the way I learned and the way I pressured a lot of other people to learn as well was um like you can't learn a melody line without the embellishments in there, right? Ooh. Because then you just have to learn it again, you know, and I would have, I even had, um, Mm. (laughs) I had a student show up to our band who had done dojo courses, who she was playing a melody line without the embellishments. And I was like, I was chill about it. I wasn't like, no, that's wrong. But I was like, oh, I wouldn't recommend that because then you basically just have to learn it again. Here comes one of those poor dojo people again. Yeah. I didn't exactly think that, but I definitely have since seen the light. But that's that's where, like, I would have previously, the way I learned and the way I taught a lot of people was rhythm and melody and embellishments all together at the same time. And often also blowing up your bag and trying to squeeze through a couple of two by fours tied together with yellow cord, you know, Um, which that's silly, right? But I never thought it was silly until reading this because that's how I learned. And so I thought that was the way it was done, you know? Mm hmm. I mean, we can disprove we can disprove those with uh, just analogies from other areas. Mm. For example, like, um, for example, when do you want to know there's a problem with the foundation? Like, do you want to know? Do you want to realize it as you're putting the shingles on the roof? Right. Uh, or, and you're, and you're nailing in the crown molding and all, you know, as you're putting the finishing touches on your house, is that when you want to know that there's a catastrophic default with your foundation? It's like, no, we, that's not when we want to know it. Right. Like you want to know it the moment, like maybe 14 minutes into basically framing the house. Right. It's like, right. Oh, time out. We've got we've got a catastrophic foundation problem here because the further you build outwards towards that finished, um, you know, nuanced uh, house with all the complexities finished up, that's going to make it harder and harder and harder to reverse course uh, and fix a catastrophic foundational problem. Right. The 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 further you build out, uh, you know, it's not a matter of relearning it. Right. It's like it's not that's not what it is at all. Right. It's there's foundational layers of complexity i you know again it's a hypothesis it's a conjecture but i think that's how the human brain really works is we learn something basic and we build on it and then we build on it and then we build on it and then we build on it and the most painful moments of being human right are when you realize you have to take many step back steps back in order to address a problem that you're having like that's 
that's a really, you know, it's like, uh, you know, marriage counseling and stuff like that. Right. It's like, like couples will go to marriage counseling, uh, probably when they reach the point where they're going to start to realize, Oh, wait a minute. We're like many layers beyond like, like something many layers ago, probably Mm -hmm. not Mm -hmm. operating the way it needs to operate. And so you need that, that process is very, very painful. Right. And it's the same way with piping. It's like, it's not, it's not that you have to, you know, so your point, which is a great point. I think everybody, everybody is tempted to think this way at some point. It's like, why I don't want to learn the simplified version because uh, then I'll have to relearn something new when I do the embellishments. But what people need to realize is that embellishments are a layer uh, on top of that mm-hmm. base simple layer. Um, and I can, you know, and there's many examples of that where if you can ask Stuart Little to play a, uh, a tune, right? Uh, like particularly the fun tunes that he plays and he'll play a different assortment of grace notes Mm. and embellishments every time he plays the tune because it's just an added layer on top of what the actual base of the tune is. Mm. And I can do that a little bit, but maybe not as well as Stuart can do it. Well, who else can really? Just to, I, just wanted to, I just wanted to, like my, one of my secrets is I always try and put myself in the same sentence as those players. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> right. There's a, yeah. Really, there's a really excellent it's, bit of, in this chapter actually where <laughs> you make a great statement that I'm not going to skip over when we get there. <laughs> oh, um, okay. Let's keep going. So anyway, yeah, that's so, melody, right? So, so between yeah. the rhythm, which is the absolute bass layer, and then basic melody, right? Just the big notes and the, the minimally viable set of grace notes that we're going to need, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, that, that, that's the foundation of all bagpipe tunes. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't add in any embellishments until you can play the, simplif- you know, the simplified. And maybe simplified is the wrong name for it. But if you can play just this, like a, the simple uh, naked melody really, really well. Right. Okay. Yeah, there's there, you could call it like uh, the core version of the tune or something mm-hmm, like that, right? Exactly. Yep, the source code. It, mm. You got to make sure you got the source code like perfectly clean and nice and tidy. And maybe not perfectly, but you want to make sure it's like, you know, 98% of the way there yeah, before you yeah. start to add the decorations in, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to build a house on sand, right? There's a reason they made up that an- annoying saying and they say it all the time. Yeah, yeah. Because unfortunately, as much as we the, wish it weren't true, the song true, that I is. sang as a kid going through my head here: <laughs> "Wise man built his house on a rock; foolish man built his house on the sand." Yeah. Um, so then we have basic fundamental or basic instrument fundamentals, which which includes a couple of yeah. things. It includes the the four points of bagpipe posture. Do you want to do you want to hit real quick? Which are those four points? Is it like neck, back, knees, and arms? Or oh, now that you just uh, now that you just. Uh said that now I have to go through the four. Uh, Head, shoulders, knees, and toes. Hold that thought. (laughs) I think think the the most interesting thing about this coming next is that um, I wonder how many people out here were told that until you can play several tunes fully embellished to a high standard, right? Uh, It's not time to go to the pipes yet. I think I had three common marches down was the rule for me. Okay. And that's not like, that's not too bad. Um, but you know, to me, we want to get started on these basic instrument fundamentals now. So we, we talked about having the basic naked melody down. Now it's time to start doodling with the pipes, right? It's all going to come together at the end. Mm -hmm. Okay. But for now it's kind of time to switch gears. Um, because that we can do things in parallel at this point, right? We can be working on some melodies over here. We can be working on some bagpipe fundamentals over here uh, because pretty soon we're going to need it all to come together on the full pipes. So that's why we shift gears now and just throwing it out there. That's when the dojo would recommend anybody begin on the full pipes. And notice I said begin. Like we're not going to go straight to three drones or anything Mm -hmm. crazy, right? We're going to start to begin on the full pipes the moment that you can play a few basic melodies really well uh, or, or a few basic tunes really well. And we're going to get on the pipes and yeah. then we're going to, yeah, we're going to work on stuff like basic bagpipe posture. It's another one of those things that very few people ever talk about. And I remember vividly Carl and I were recording the transition into the bagpipes course and I pick up the pipes and it's like, Carl, 
we need to stop because nowhere in here do we tell people kind of like how they're supposed to pick up the pipes and how they're supposed to hold them. And so anyway, it was at that moment that we, we put together the four, what we call the four points of bagpipe posture. Uh, they're in no particular order, okay, but they're very important. So in no particular order, gee, now I have to kind of try to like remember the best one to start with, even though I've been saying uh, in no particular order. So uh, like one of them would be that the bass drum needs to rest naturally on your shoulder uh, at roughly a 45 degree angle. So you see a lot of people with the bass drum sticking perfectly straight up in the air, Mm -hmm. which we don't want. And then uh, we've got the bass drum sticking like at parallel to the ground at a 90 degree angle, which we also don't want. Yeah. Yep. The other one is that we want the chanter to be aligned with the center of your body. Okay, and then the other one is we want the blowpipe to be centered in the middle of the mouth uh, and without having to contort your neck or anything mm-hmm. like that. And then finally, the, probably the most important of the four or maybe the one that does the most immediate damage, uh, if you don't quite get it right, is that we don't want our uh, forearm to be involved in squeezing the bag, right? We want it to be the elbow. Not the uh, and and the underarm is fine too, but mm-hmm. but beyond the elbow, we don't want this to be involved in squeezing the bag, and we want our wrist to be at a natural angle. So we've got that left arm element there. So um, it's kind of like four and a half points of bagpipe posture because four and that and a half left points, arm yeah. has got two yeah two things to think about. But anyway, posture is big. We'll we'll teach somebody the basics of posture before we turn on any reeds. Right? We'll just mm-hmm. cork up the whole instrument have them blow it up nice and tight like a, like a basketball. Um, and then we'll just have them hold the pipes and look in the mirror and just talk through the points of posture with them and make sure, you know, at that stage of the game, it's really important for people to understand those things. Yeah. It's really hard to unlearn uh, bad oh, yeah. posture habits. I, yeah. I feel like there's always going to be room for improvement, but personally I feel like I've finally got to a point just in recent years where I like, I'm not causing myself pain from playing the bagpipes. Because after like 15 years, I started going, now wait, what if I changed my blowpipe so I don't have to twist my neck that way? And it took that long for me to realize like, oh, I can do that. Like I have control over my instrument. I can change it so that it's more comfortable to play. The um, And then the the other part, the next, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say the basic premise on which the four points of posture come from, right? Like you could come up with your own points of posture. Um, and as long as the, the North star of those four points are that, um, let me make sure I get this right before I just spit it out, but you want the bagpipe to fit your body and not the other way around. Right? So instead of changing our bodies to try and Mm -hmm. fit our bagpipes, we want the bagpipe to fit on our frame. Okay. And we want to set things up and arrange things. So that's the case. Uh, and what you, you'll come to a very similar four points of posture uh, if you just use that as the basic premise. Um, and that's exactly it. It's like you wouldn't, if you were relaxing and, uh, or even if you were just standing at attention or something, you wouldn't stand at attention like this. Mm. Right? Which is how many people play their pipes. Yep. With their head over here like this. That's not it, right? The head should be perfectly forward. The blowpipe should be just resting, right? Any, any, um, Pipers out there ever get the flying blowpipe? If you let go of it, yep. it just flies yeah. out of your mouth like seven inches that way. Um, that's a, that's something we have to address because, <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, that's something we have to address. Yori's yeah. got and that shoulders thing too, that right? I'm always you, like you this can, with my shoulders. Uh, hook up to your blowpipe. Right, that's right. And the uneven shoulder would violate that bass drone rule we talked about. The bass drone should sit naturally right. on your shoulder. And produce a roughly 45-degree angle. If it's 30 degrees, it's fine. Uh, mm. But not, not 5 degrees. Right? Like, we want right. that. Uh, and then you, you look at the best players, and they seem to be usually getting 45-degree angle. But I'm sure, uh, Jim, you remember when Nat McIsaac uh, wrote that comment. Did, did we have a posture totally. podcast already? Uh, and we, he wrote we talked in about and, and, well, we talked about hand position, and that came into it a little bit, yeah. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but he wrote in, and of course, like Matt's a great example of someone who has posture that's uh, not exactly the same as I'm describing. 
So it's definitely possible right. to be to be amazing with uh, you know what I would consider suboptimal uh, posture elements, right? Uh, like or that that would be different from what I would teach a beginner. It's definitely possible, and you see it all the time. You see people with the vertical base drone all the time. Uh, however, mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that those basic four points of posture. Uh, at this point, having taught so many students, I'm pretty sure that that'll give you, you know, the best foundation. Reminds me of golf swings, right? Like you'll see if you watch golf on TV, every now and then someone comes up with like something you're not expecting visually in their golf swing. But nine times out of 10, right, the the, the swings are looking pretty similar because because like over mm -hmm. time we're arriving at we're arriving at what's op, what or at least what seems optimal. And then maybe some, yeah, at some least optimal up. for most people, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And I think, and maybe I think we're Matt wrong McIsaac about that. Even, and yeah. it seems like he even made clear that like he was, he even recognized that like he had issues with his posture and like, so he's amazing in spite of a, some, perhaps a suboptimal posture. Yeah, maybe. I mean, that's, you know, uh, not for us. Or to maybe say. that's part of his secret sauce. Hard to say. Yeah, it's, it is hard to say. It's funny because it's like we could be wrong about it, right? Like yeah. uh, it, it's kind of like basketball. It's like, well, we don't want to shoot too many three-pointers. It's like, well, it turns out maybe we weren't quite correct about that. And like now the mm -hmm. entire game of basketball is being radically transformed by an onslaught of three-point shooting. Uh, and just, yeah. you know, we've somehow had this quantum leap of shooting. And I think it's just willingness to shoot it. Uh, and now you got yeah. your Steph Curry's and and these guys like just sending the bombs from half court and they're making them a shocking amount of times, you know, and, and now you're yeah. starting to, you have to reevaluate the whole game, but I digress, I'm not talking about anything of merit. So what else we got? So we, we we're talking about well, bagpipe posture. That, yeah, yeah. And then go ahead. you mentioned that in the old days, what we would do when someone was transitioning onto pipes is we would cork off all their drones and have them try to squeeze a melody through the chanter. But you're, you're mixing yes. that up. Is this the effects of Joe Brady? Instead, you want him tuning Joe, two drones together. Which two uh, drones? Joe Is it Brady always the method. two tenors or do you? Well, and yeah. we would actually start with just one drone, right? And we would start with just mm -hmm. one drone and we would uh, teach the basics of how to blow steadily. Uh, but we do that with one drone, right? It's like you got to blow in, then you got to squeeze. Oh, but look, it's like not steady when you do that. So you got to think about the transition between the two, blah, blah, blah. Just get used to blowing steadily with just one drone. No tuning of anything yet. It's like, let's just yeah. learn some basic blowing mechanics just with one drone. And by the way, as we're Wait, doing it's that, like that oh, I was just, just to finish the thought, as we're doing that, keep in mind, we've got our finger work stuff that we can also stay busy with, you know, to keep our practice sessions interesting because obviously just playing one drone is, you know, it's not super riveting, but, you know, it, we can start to incorporate these things into our general practice sessions by doing just one thing at a time like this. I, I do agree with you, of course, that just playing one drone is not super riveting, though it also occurs to me that like any student at this point in their progress is going to be really excited to start squeezing a bagpipe, even if it's just a drone for a while. And this yep. will break up the monotony of their chanter work a little bit too. Yeah. And um, it's like, you know, we'll talk about this again at some point in the future. Maybe we've already mentioned it. It's like, there's always time for dessert at the end, right? So if the mm, if the yeah. student is super hot to trot and they want to stick the chanter in and see and and see what happens, like we can do that, right? We're just talking about what we'll be focused on at this stage of the game. We're not going to be focused on the yeah. chanter yet because that that takes several leaps. But we never want to say like, oh, you want to have fun doing something? No, don't do that fun thing. Not yet. Make sure you, yeah, <laughs> right. never any fun. No, we wouldn't want to do that, but. But right now, you know, we're talking about what we would be focused on during, you know, mm -hmm. our lesson or our practice session. Uh, but then after or towards the end, when you've got five minutes at the end, it's like, want to stick the chanter in and see what happens and just have, you know, and just making it clear that we're not really ready for that yet. But like, let's just have some fun with it. Like, that's all on the table. Uh, but we're going to do yeah. that. We're going to do that after like that's after the the relatively brief hard work. Uh, period of time where we mm -hmm. talk about steady blowing and what's going to have to happen. Well, yeah. it's interesting to me uh, and too then, that by the way, this section comes away. Oh, Sorry, we've been doing this. Go ahead. I think we're, I think yeah. we're yeah, getting we've increased been, I, delay I keep... as we go along because of the upload. 
Yeah, maybe, but the upload's looking pretty strong today. So yeah, you're already at 99%. So that's pretty good. Look at me. I'm usually not that high at this point. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. I was going to say that, that um, it's standard. interesting to me after, um, after talking about the melody and how the challenge is moving between melody notes, then we talk about this and how I'm just thinking about when I learned, yes, we corked off all the drones and I went straight to chanter. But the way that I was squeaking out on the chanter is I would find the note I was going to play and then squeeze extra hard and go, and then I'd find the next note because I'd be silent again. I'd find the next note and then squeeze it out. And that's absolutely not helpful in yeah. clean transitions between notes and so yeah, it I was agree. like double not good for me you know yeah maybe um, not and all you also way... mentioned in the chapter here it you, is fun you, well, you mentioned like, too you're doing that... is fun and you're doing something exciting true so that's that was good, exciting but, yeah but you're right and you mentioned here you say it cements the idea in the mind of the student that piping is supposed to be hard work Yes. When we go straight to trying to squeeze through that chanter. Um, That's right. I, so and lots I think of reasons the, to go to drones. Yeah. And as the teacher, right, we, we definitely don't want to send that message, right? Like when mm. I play my bagpipes, I'm comfortable and usually fairly happy and I'm feeling joy, right? And if, the, uh, if transitioning to the bagpipes for the student is this colossal slap in the face that is just a giant wall of frustration for many months before anything good starts to happen. You know, um, that's a huge mistake. That's something that the teacher doesn't do well. It's like showing up to third grade and, uh, you know, they're telling you that uh, we're just going to start with calculus. Right. A, a few very dedicated students would make it through, but a lot of them would be kind of pushed out by Amen. that. Amen, my brother. So, uh, yeah, exactly. If, if you did show up to third grade and they wanted to learn calculus, the scary thing is, or the horrifying thing is, that, like, two kids might kind of almost get it. Like, yeah. two, the two yeah. wild and crazy outlier kids who had math genius parents uh, who understood calculus, like, they might do it. And then you might be tempted to say, well, those guys can do it, so, so we must just need to try and teach these other people harder. But, no, that's yeah. not it. Right. And, and piping is so guilty of that. Right. It's like, you know, I was a I was a uh, I was one of those super outliers as a kid. So I, I had a great time. But then a lot of other people just get stuck at certain points in the process and they they're not getting unstuck because we have mm -hmm. an outlier centric. We have an outlier centric, uh, you know, piping world at this at this stage in the yeah. game. Hopefully so then we. We, we then enter uh, phase four, which is the meeting of the dimensions. And you talk about how we, as bagpipers, we're simultaneously controlling two <laughs> fairly complex systems. Yes. But you also make a distinction that these systems are complex, but not complicated. Yes. So what are those two systems and why do you make the distinction between complexity and complication? Yeah, so... Uh... Um, by the way, I was just talking about how it's bad to, when you slap down a student, but phase four is like this inevitable, like, uh, converging of these two systems. So it is inevitably a slap down, but you'll notice like we've at least delayed it a while. So, and we've given yes, us maybe yeah. some hope of getting it, but yeah, phase four is the, the phase It's very tricky. Mm -hmm. Right. But anyway, we talked already about the two hemispheres. We've got our finger work fundamentals. Uh, that mm -hmm. we need to get to a minimally viable standard. And we've got our instrument fundamentals, things such as blowing steady, being able to tune a couple of drones together, um, uh, avoiding mental blowing anomalies, making sure the maintenance is good, that kind of stuff, right? Uh, and then at some point, now we got to do both at the same time. We got to do the basic finger yeah. work while playing the pipes. Um, and so... That's what we do in phase four. We take the various things that we've learned to do thus far and we attempt to put them together by playing some simplified tunes on the pipes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And why, why do you call these, um, why, why complex or, or, or rather, yeah, why do we call this complex and not complicated? Yeah, so, so complicated suggests that uh, things are hard to figure out and difficult to understand, right? It, <laughs> Meanwhile, complexity just means that there's a lot of moving pieces. So the way I think about complex is right. there's a lot of moving pieces, but none of the pieces 
are difficult to understand. So I really like that. That, Mm -hmm. That's what we've done in the freedom phase process. Yeah. At the end of the day, there's 10 distinct moving pieces. Okay. But none of those moving pieces are something that's outside of the potential for you to understand. Whereas complicated Mm -hmm. might be right. It's like, if you're, if you're studying weather patterns, there may very well be like elements of science that are kind of complicated and counterintuitive to get, uh, you know, uh, quantum physics or rocket science or gravity. Like those are things that actually have complicated layers, at least for the average person. It's like where you have to understand that, Mm -hmm. you know, gravity is not actually what you thought it was and what it actually is, Mm -hmm. is quite counterintuitive. And you have to actually kind of understand some of Einstein's equations. I think, I don't know. I'm just speculating at this point as a layman, but Mm -hmm. like, I think you actually have to understand some of that in order to get rockets to work. There's none of that in piping. It's all pretty straightforward. Nothing's complicated, Mm. Um, but it is complex, right? There's, there are a lot of, there are a lot of pieces we need. It is kind of like equivalent to juggling 10 balls in the air, I suppose. Yeah. That's the hard part. Yeah. So all of this leads to kind of, like the chapter heading suggests, earning bagpipe freedom. And I like that you you referred to bagpipe freedom in this case as a jumping off point into true self-expression where you can go wherever you want with this amazing skill set that you've built. Um, I mean, that sounds ideal and like a hopeful message. So then you kind of give us a few mind over matter tricks that might be helpful as we go through this process. Um, and one of them, yes. this is, I think this is where you bring up the... Uh, the bruised ego situation. What was this? Where did you put it? You put, there was something in here where you, oh man, I highlighted it and now I'm, now I'm trying to find it. I think basically you said something like, I'm one of the best bagpipers in the world. <laughs> here it is. <laughs> here it is. Um, so this bruised ego section, you said, admitting that we have weaknesses in the first place is a very difficult thing to do. It's hard to be brave enough to be vulnerable and to put your playing out there for your, for your peers and your teachers to hear and critique. Everyone struggles with it. But remember, every piper is in the same boat, regardless of their level. I'm one of the best bagpipers ever to walk the earth. And even I still have some weaknesses that I struggle with. <laughs> and if yeah, you read the footnotes... You do say, just kidding, but your ego sent up red flags then, didn't it? And it did. You're right. Uh, As I read this, I was like, oh, Andrew Douglas, come on. <laughs> it's funny. Um, so, my friend yes, Ian very McDonald, effective, very effective use there. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. My friend Ian McDonald, he wrote the uh, I Piped So She Might Dance book about Angus Mackay. But he's my friend. Mm. But he he did an early proofread of my book for me. And he didn't like all the footnotes in the book. Uh, unfortunately I decided not to like, not to change the footnotes because we were already like, it would be a huge surgical thing, but he was like, I just kind of wish I didn't have to scroll down to the footnotes all the time. And then that little, that little, um, I don't know what you call that. It's a, it's a technique. It's when you try and dig at your buddy to get under their skin. But I, I did that in book form, but I, uh, maybe that, maybe that was the one that finally set him over the edge. He's like, Oh, I can't. No more footnotes, please. But there's so many footnotes in the book. I forget how many. There's like 196 footnotes or something. But most of them are just funny aside. I think, I think it's, it's fun. Like, okay, like it doesn't belong in the yeah, main paragraph. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is mostly um, so, jokes, and, and I appreciate that. But, but it's just it, who it I am, right? I can't, do, you do, I can't how, do anything without – I can't do anything without thinking about 25 jokes. Yeah, you know, we're at the point but, but in the you, podcast you men, where you the mentioned delay in this section, has become frustrating. Yeah, the the delays got worse. Sorry about that. But yeah, the the kind of the last thing I wanted to bring up from this chapter, Andrew, was that you mentioned how stressful it can be when we think about other pipers judging us. And I mean, that's not just judges. Like when when I play a gig, any gig, even if it's like a funeral, which most of my gigs are funerals. I always am thinking, what are the odds that someone in this crowd is a piper? And that's the person who has me stressed out, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know what exactly I want to say about that other than that you're right. That is a stress point for at least me and I think probably most of us. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, to wrap up just phase five, which is uh, ironically what most of us think is the most important phase and we're always stressed out about it. Uh, it's sort of the least important thing. It's sort of your crown molding and your shingles at the end of building the house. 
it's just your embellishments and you know, your basic bag piping, holding and cutting and that kind of stuff. Like we, we sort of think about that finally at the end layer, once we've built up the, you know, the basic foundation of our house, so to speak. Um, and that's phase five. We'll worry about embellishments when it's time to worry about them. And again, just like the kid that wants to actually pop the chanter in before they're ready, we can horse around with embellishments at any point. You know, we can crank the tempo up and play the tune with all the embellishments just for kicks, you know, for dessert, so to speak, at the end of any practice session. But that's never going to be what we're focused on until it's time mm. to focus on that. Um, and that's that's the key thing, because we we want to defer that the, the later we can wait in the process to insist that we have to have perfect expression and perfect embellishments all the time, the later we can wait the more work we can do to strengthen our foundation in the meantime. Hmm. So should we let Bob, Bob Ross here, uh, bring it home? You, you kind of close this section of the book by bringing it back to, you say, Bob Ross called them happy little trees for a reason. And uh, you've got a good quote from Bob Ross in there. And then you say, it's certainly not about perfection. It's about finding a process that lets you practice self-expression in a way that makes you happy and brings you joy. I'm just trying not to cry on camera right now. So beautiful. <laughs> hey everybody, Andrew Douglas here from the Piper's Dojo. And I just want to say thanks so much for listening to today's iteration of the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard here today, it would be super helpful to us and to a lot of bagpipers out there trying to find us. If you could give us a top-notch review on whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast, particularly Apple, iTunes, and Spotify, and things like that, your review would be really, really helpful. So if you have a moment today, definitely go over there and help us out. Other than that, until we meet again on the podcast or somewhere else, thanks again for listening.